0: Things with dull pineapple because it brightens just about anything on your table
1: with two different kinds of pineapple. Hawaiian pineapple, sliced, crushed, or grated. Picked ripe, canned right. The kindly sun of the tropics, tempered by the trade winds of the Pacific. The gentle rain that brings bloom and fruit to almost every inch of soil in Hawaii. The dew of morning and the mellow evening light. In a can of Hawaiian pineapple. Always ask for Hawaiian pineapple. No matter what brand so long as it comes to Hawaii. Salt everywhere. Sliced, grated and crushed. Saturday Evening Post, May 3rd, 1913. What are the images you firstly get when you hear about the island of Hawaii? Pineapples? Well, let's erase that from our minds. Pineapples originated from Brazil and they were domesticated probably about 4,000 years ago. In Hawaii, the earliest reference of pineapple comes from around 1813, where a certain Don Francisco de Palamarín planted a pineapple. Of course, the climate in Hawaii is perfect for the fruit. And a lot of people started planting it, of course, and using it. But this is not what uh, Hawaii and the Polynesian Islands are known for. Originally, anyway, there's a long and fascinating history of um, Polynesian food which we will explore now. Hello! Welcome back to The Delicious Legacy with me, Thomas Dinas. Another archaeogastronomical adventure beckons. I had this episode planned uh, for a long time. I've been researching for it um, for a few months, slowly. And it was chipping away here and there. And then I recorded most of it um, a few weeks back. And um, then uh, the massive wildfire in uh, Hawaii happened. And um, then I had mixed thoughts if I should release it or not. But I think um, it's good to know more about this um Amazing set of islands in the middle of the Pacific. So, while my thoughts and surely all our thoughts are with um, the victims of um, of the huge wildfires, I thought it would be a good idea to pay tribute to them by um, spreading the story and the food and their history to as many people as possible. So, let's take a deep dive to the fascinating history of those islands and their amazing. Um, foods, which obviously they are influenced and they're part of uh, the wider Polynesian cuisine and the Polynesian culture, which uh, had flourished on um, the Pacific for thousands of years. Let's find out more about the people and their fascinating history here. Before we start, let me thank my Patreon supporters, my Patreon backers, because without your generous support, this podcast wouldn't have happened. And please Please, please, if you enjoy this podcast, you listen out there on Acast, Spotify, YouTube, Amazon, Stitcher, and so on, please um, uh, go to Patreon and uh, type The Delicious Legacy Podcast and support me in any way you can. There are different tires from $3 and more than above where you get um, the um, episodes early and, of course, ad-free and with extra added bonus content like recipes and so on. On top of that you get exclusive material and also videos, any videos that I make you get them uh, first as well. And now onwards to our episode. Tiny dots in the vast Pacific Ocean shaped by the Earth's molten core forces, unconquerable by man. The nature and the islands of Hawaiian archipelago are just as unique as they are beautiful. The distance between the Hawaiian island of Kure Atoll and Amatignac Island in Alaska is only about 1,573 miles. Nitrov Point is the southernmost point of Alaska, and Kure Atoll is the northernmost point in Hawaii. And also this lies 3,850 miles, or 6,195 kilometers, from Japan. Hawaii is the furthest from many landmasses in the world. Though there are hundreds of small islands in Hawaii, there are only eight major islands, Nihau, Kauai, Oahu, Molokai, Lanai, Kahoolawe, Maui, and the island of Hawaii, the big island. The shortest distance between Hawaii and California is between the island of Maui and Point Arena near San Francisco. The distance is estimated at about 2,286 miles. The total distance between one of the main islands in Hawaii, Kaua'ai, and Samalga Islands in Alaska is estimated to be about 2,172 miles. The capital of Hawaii is Honolulu, which is located on the island of Oahu. The six largest Hawaiian islands form a chain of islands running to the northwest. The islands appear in this pattern for a specific reason. They were formed one after the other as a tectonic plate, the Pacific plate, slid over a plume of magma, the molten rock puncturing Earth's crust. These magma plumes aren't small. They can extend hundreds of kilometers below Earth's surface. This upwelling of the molten rock, known as a hotspot, creates volcanoes that spew out lava, which is the magma that reaches the Earth's surface. The lava then cools and hardens to create new land. The Hawaiian islands were literally created from lots of volcanoes. They are a trail of volcanic eruptions. Hotspot volcanism can occur in the middle of tectonic plates. That's unlike traditional volcanism, which takes place at plate boundaries. One explanation that scientists have proposed for hotspot volcanism is that occurs near unusually hot parts of the Earth's mantle, the layer of the planet below the crust. In the case of the Hawaiian Islands, the Pacific Plate is continually moving to the northwest over the Hawaiian hotspot. This movement caused the chain of the islands to form. The Pacific Plate is just one of the Earth's roughly 20 tectonic plates, which are constantly in motion and are responsible for events like earthquakes. There are many landforms around Hawaiian islands that formed from the same volcanic spot. Scientists believe this hotspot has been expelling lava for roughly 70 million years. 15 years ago, if someone was saying to me about taro or breadfruit or wala and uh, Yams and, um, and Pua, I would have uh, looked at them as uh, they came from another planet, as aliens. What exactly is these terms? What do they mean? And even something I understand in terms of words, breadfruit, what the heck is this? But as we become a lot more globalised and a lot more open to foods from the East and more so from the Pacific, the inevitable mingling of cultures, in, especially in the USA, now we are a lot more—not only me, but all of us a lot more familiar with actual Polynesian and Hawaiian food. And of course, that's what I want to explore: this, um, this exciting, interesting, and sustainable foods of um, Polynesia.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Of course, it's not only the weird and wonderful vegetables, roots, and fruits that um, were the staples of the Huanians' uh, culture, but also the holistic management of land and sea and the food production, which was very sustainable and extremely rich with fish, especially, and um, a diet that. Um, it was far more healthy and equal to all inhabitants of the islands than the one that they experience today, as part of, uh, if not the richest, but one of the richest and most advanced nations in the world. Captain Cook's Journal, November 1778, Monday the 30th. While we were lying to, though the wind blew fresh, I observed that the ships drifted to the east. Consequently, there must have been a current setting in that direction. This encouraged me to ply windward, with a view to get round east end of the island, and so have the whole lee side before us. In the afternoon of the 30th, being off the northeast end of the island, several canoes came off to the ships. Most of these belonged to a chief named Teriobo who came in one of them. He made me a present of two or three small pigs, and we got, by barter, from the other people, a little fruit. After a stay of about two hours, they all left us, except six or eight of their company, who chose to remain on board. A double-sailing canoe came, soon after, to attend upon them, which we towed astern all night. In the evening, we discovered another island to Windward, which the natives called O'Highi, the name of that of which we had been for three days, we were also told it was Mo'i. The islands were first settled by Polynesians sometime between 124 AD and 1120 AD, forming thus the modern population of Native Hawaiians. Hawaiian civilization was isolated from the rest of the world for at least 500 years. The history of ancient Polynesians was passed down through genealogy chants that were recited at formal and family functions. The genealogy of the high chiefs could be traced back to the period believed to be inhabited only by gods. The Pua'ali, flower of royalty, were considered to be living gods. By about 1000 AD, settlements founded along the perimeters of the islands were beginning to cultivate foods in gardens. A Tahitian priest named Paao is said to have brought a new order to the islands around 1200 AD. The new order included new laws and a new social structure that separated the people into classes. The Ali Inui was the king, with his Aha Kuhina just below them. The Ali'i were the royal nobles with the Kahuna, high priests, below them. The Maka'aena, commoners, next, with the Kaua below them as the lowest-ranking social caste. And by 1500 AD, they began to spread to the interiors of the islands. And religion, state religion, was more emphasised. The diet of the Hawaiian people was based on a triptych of uh, taro. Breadfruit and pig. Taro is one of the oldest cultivated vegetables in the world. Taro was life in Hawaii. It literally supported a whole civilization in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. But when Polynesians arrived in the islands, would have needed some carbohydrates. Enter taro and breadfruit and bananas and coconuts. For a thousand years, people lived sustainably, grew and thrived in these islands thanks to taro. Taro originates somewhere in Southeast Asia, though botanists aren't quite sure where people started cultivating it, for the dinner tables. There were likely several places, with DNA pointing to New Guinea as one of the major centers of Taro domestication. Genetic and archaeological evidence, including remnants of Taro grains on stone tools in the Solomon Islands from 28,000 to 20,000 years ago, Suggest that this plant is one of the world's oldest cultivated crops, predating staples like wheat by more than 10,000 years. It's incredible really if you think about it. The timescale, the timeline, is just insane. In Hawaii, it grew and cultivated in giant fish ponds, unique in this island. So taro was cultivated on the back end of the fish ponds as it needs mostly fresh water, sometimes brackish too. And, of course, the poo of the fish was a fertilizer. It was fertilizing the soil, and the taro grew with abundance. We will explore the agriculture of the Hawaii Islands uh, very soon, and uh, also their famous uh, fish ponds. So what they call uh, loi is a patch of wetland dedicated to growing kalo. Hawaiians have traditionally used irrigation to produce kalo. Kalo is the traditional word for uh, taro. Wetland fields produce 10 to 15 times more kalo per acre than dry fields. Wetland-grown kalo need a constant flow of water. About 300 varieties of kalo were originally brought to Hawaii, and about 100 remain nowadays. The kalo plant takes seven months to grow until harvest, so loy fields are used in rotation, and the soil can be replenished while the loy in use has sufficient water. Stems are typically replanted in the loi for future harvests. Fermenting taro to poi is the way to make it last longer, as it goes bad quite quickly. As we've said, kalo is taro's Hawaiian name. The local crop plays an important role in Hawaiian culture and mythology. Taro is a traditional staple of the native cuisine of Hawaii. Some of the uses of taro include poi, table taro, which is steamed and served like potato, taro chips and luau leaf to make lau, lau. In Hawaii, Kalo is farmed under, as we said, either dryland or wetland conditions, and taro farming there, in the wetlands, is challenging because of the difficulties of accessing fresh water. So Kalo is usually grown in pond fields, known as loi, and the typical dryland or upland varieties are Lehua Maoli and Bunlong, the latter widely known as Chinese taro. Bunlong is used for making taro chips. Dashin is another dryland variety cultivated for its corns, or as an ornamental plant. A contemporary Hawaiian diet consists of many tuberous plants, particularly sweet potato and kalo. Important aspects of Hawaiian culture revolved around kalo. For example, the newer name for a traditional feast, the luau, comes from kalo. Kalo tops baked with coconut milk and chicken meat or octopus arms are frequently served at luau's. By ancient customs, fighting is not allowed when a bowl of poi is open. It is disrespectful to fight in front of an elder and one should not raise their voice, speak angrily or make rude comments or gestures. The importance of taro in the cultural fabric of Hawaii cannot be overstated. It's a staple food that kept Hawaiians fed in difficult times, undoubtedly, and this can be seen in their creation myths, like this one. One mythological version of Hawaiian ancestry cites the taro plant as an ancestor of the people. Legend joins two siblings of high and divine rank, Papa Hanaumoku, Papa from whom the land are born, or Earth Mother, and Wakea, Sky Father. Together they create the islands of Hawaii and a beautiful woman, Hohukukalani, the Heavenly One who made the stars. So the story of Kalo begins when Uakea and Papa conceived the daughter, this woman, the heavenly one. Daughter and father then conceived a child together named Okay, and I'm trying to pronounce that hopefully somehow correctly. Halo Long stalk trembling, but it was a stillborn. After the father and daughter buried the child near their house, a Kalo plant grew over the grave. The stems were slender, and when the wind blew they swayed and bent as to paying homage, their heart shaped leaves shivering gracefully as in hula, and in the center of each leaf water gathered like a mother's teardrop. The second child, born of Wakea and Hohukalani, was named Haloa, after his older brother. The colour of the earth was the sustenance of the young brother, and became the principal food for successive generations. The Hawaiian word for family, ohana, is derived from oha, the shoot that grows from the Kalo corn. As young shoots grow from the corn of the Kalo plant, so people, too, grow from their family. Today, unfortunately, 90% of people don't eat taro, and it's hard to find in in Hawaii. And it's far more expensive. It's a hand-harvested crop. Losing this staple food is a disaster for native Hawaiians. There is a high rate of obesity and diabetes compared to other ethnicities. Colonization, as we've seen, shattered the people's identity uh, when uh, the language was banned and when Taro was removed from their social consciousness. And of course, when the pineapple plantations took land and water away from the native people and they haven't given it back yet, unfortunately. What is Taro? Taro is a, a root vegetable in a sense. It's a tropical plant native to Southeast Asia that produces a starchy root vegetable. And this can be used just like many other root vegetables, such as sweet potato and potato, etc. It can be boiled, it can be fried, it can be baked, and so on. This was a staple of Polynesians for thousands and thousands of years. It's one of the oldest cultivated vegetables. In the world. What is surprising for me is that I know taro as Kolokasi. Because in Cyprus, it's part of traditional dishes. It's known as Kolokasi or Kolokasia. And apparently, which is something I haven't investigated a lot more, to be honest. It's been used there since the Roman Empire. Which is, again, it was an insanely surprising um, fact that I've learned. It must have arrived in Cyprus uh, from uh, trade in the Roman Empire with Asia, in, with India and other places um, from there. But um, yeah, I would be very surprised if it was actually cultivated um, since then. It does feel like a very strange fact. The fact that um, it has been known apparently as Egyptian water lily and Egyptian beans back in Hellenistic times and Virgil and Pliny both referred to the plant in their writing it seems to be seems to have come from um, from south asia with traders with trading but i really i'm not sure sure but in any case i think maybe that's for another episode <laughs> or for a footnote um, uh, for a footnote for this episode cuz we really want to concentrate on the amazing foods and uh, agriculture of uh, polynesians After weeks or months at sea, trying to reach America's shores, as supplies of food and water began to run low, the resolution sighted a paradisal shore. Rather than landing, Captain Cook insisted for no reason at all that they keep sailing interminably around the coast. As the unhinged captain circled the island, the year turned from 1778 to 1779. Eyes watched, perhaps curiously, from the beach. On January 17th, the resolution cast anchor at last, in a volcanic bay made of black sand. And a stream of perhaps 10,000 locals gathered to await it. 500 canoes laden with sugarcane, breadfruit and pigs glided up to the ship. Histories narrate that for the people of Hawaii, the arrival of Cook... Was no less than an epiphany. The men hurried to the ship to see the god with their own eyes, wrote the 19th century Hawaiian historian Samuel Kamakau. There they saw a fair man with bright eyes, a high nose, light hair, and handsome features. Good looking gods they were. An elderly, emaciated priest went to board the resolution and led the deities ashore. Thousands fell to their knees as Cook passed by. The priest led the captain to a thatched temple, wrapped Cook in a red cloth and sacrificed a small pig to him, as the people recited lines from the Hawaii epic Kumulipo, a creation myth. According to the late anthropologist Marshall Shalintz, among others, Cook's arrival marked an extraordinary coincidence. A ritual known as the Makahiki was taking place on Hawaii at the time in which the god Lono is said to reappear from the distant land of his exile and to seize power over the earth from the king for a period of time. As it circled the island in a clockwise direction, the resolution had inadvertently traced the path of the effigy of Lono, as it was born in a procession around the coast. The idol is made of a pole and cross-piece with white cloth hanging from it, resembling a sail, and Cook, as if he followed the script of a myth he could not have known, had landed in the bay, said to be the god's home. His sailors reported that the captain was hailed variously as Lono-Orono-Rono-Eroner, a character that is looked upon by them as partaking something of divinity. The ship's surgeon related, echoing a Biblical phrase describing Christ. Another word used to greet Cook was akua, a Hawaii term that was translated as god. The white men remained on the island for three weeks. Each day, the priests ceremoniously presented the British with a barbecued hog. The people would gather all the fruits of the land, sweet potatoes, coconuts, bananas and taro, for these gods from heaven, where, where food had run out. On February the 3rd, the Resolution departed Hawaii to continue its explorations in the north, yet was struck by a severe storm and forced to turn back. When the British anchored again, in Kealakekua Bay, eight days after they had departed, a fog of suspicion and hostility settled over the island as the people attempted to discern the stranger's reason of returning. The tension soon erupted into violence. Two Hawaiian chiefs were killed and Cook decided to take the king, Kalani Opu'u hostage. When the captain waded ashore, hundreds of warriors fell upon him with iron daggers and clubs Captain Cook was dead. Following his death, the captain was accorded traditional rituals for a vanquished chief. His corpse was dismembered, his flesh roasted and his bones separated and portioned out, with his lower jaw going to Kalani Opuu, his skull to somebody else, and so on. Among Cook's sailors who had fled back to the revolution, a general silence ensued, wrote the officer George Gilbert. It was like a dream that we could not reconcile ourselves to. Two priests rowed to the ship with a bundle containing a large chunk of the captain's thigh. Along with the charred offering, they brought with them a most extraordinary question. They wished to know when Cook would return to the vessel and resume his former station. Would it be in uh, three days' time? The two men shed an abundance of tears at the loss of their erono. Lieutenant James King recorded, and they asked what he would do to them when he returned. On shore, other islanders asserted that he would return in two months and begged our mediation with him in their favour. According to mid James Trevenan, the German sailor Zimmerman recorded a prophecy. The god cook is not dead, but sleeps in the woods and will come tomorrow, as translated by an interpreter. Over the following years, the idea seemed to persist that Cook would resurrect. These stories, told and retold over generations, ignore one obvious fact. Cook was killed because he acted rashly and violently, slaughtering chiefs, kidnapping the king, and giving an impression the British had returned to conquer the island. I'll be back after this short break. Today's episode is brought to you with the welcome support of Malbeam Greek, UK's leading Greek telekateson, supplier and distributor of premium Greek produce. Whatever your needs, Malbeam Greek has you covered. You can shop online and have the divine and delicious goods delivered to your doorstep across the UK, or you can visit the shop at ART17 Apollo Business Park, Lucy Way, SC16, 4ET, Bermondsey, London. Malbeam Greek, the one-stop shop for your Greek fix. June the 4th, 1976 A traditional Polynesian double-hulled sailing canoe called Hokulea near Tahiti's Papeete Harbour after 33 days at sea. The elders wept at the beach, absorbed by the moment's enormity. Children scaled trees to snag views of the history that would soon be unfolded. Hokulea carried a crew of a dozen Hawaiians and one Micronesian who'd used the pillars of ancient Polynesian wayfinding, navigating the seas by the stars, the sun, the wind, the waves, and wildlife, with no instruments, to travel all the 3,862 kilometers from Hawaii to Tahiti. This surely was the first voyage of, on this route using traditional Polynesian wayfinding in centuries. And Papete's harbor checked Joel crowd of 17,000 Tahitians more than half of the island population at the time were there to celebrate. To any of us modern Westerners, the outsiders, this um, oceanic navigation without relying to any instruments may sound like a more than challenging um, trip, an impossible challenge. But for the Polynesian wayfinders, it involves a deep and sacred connection to the Earth and a fluency in the planet's movements and patterns. Where the average person admires shining stars or soaring gulls, wayfinders see constellations as navigational guardrails and seabirds as clues to what lies ahead. Polynesians perfected non-instrumental deep-sea navigation more than 3,000 years ago, way before early European explorers reached the Pacific with compasses and sextants. The ocean and its islands are their world. They are at home in a way that land-based people have a hard time imagining. Polynesian wayfinders interpreted and understood Earth's um, signals so successfully, in fact, that they migrated Almong and settled on more than 1,000 scattered islands and atolls across the Polynesian Triangle between New Zealand, Hawaii, and Easter Island. But after European and US colonization in the late 800s, history classes throughout Polynesia told a different story. Children were taught that wayfinding long distances was impossible without instruments. Instead, they were told ancient Polynesians drifted directionless, accidentally stumbling upon, then settling, the Pacific Islands. Of course, one thing that we know of uh, Polynesian cooking is the way that they create their fists and they cook their fists uh, by digging holes in the ground and placing their stones that they heat up, the store heat and um, the food then is buried and cooked there slowly. This is called imu, which is an underground oven, and essentially it's a large hole dug, and then special stones are heated, red hot. These stones must hold the heat for a long time, as we said. Then the pit was lined with uh, honohono grass, and in it there were placed taro, breadfruit, sweet potatoes, bananas, and all covered with leaves, and then the whole pit covered with old mats or cloth. And that required about three to four hours to cook uh, the taro and the luau leaves. As we said, taro needs to be cooked thoroughly, because otherwise um, it has certain toxins that they are uh, <laughs> bad for you for the, for the throat and the tongue. Of course, for very special occasions, there was pigs and chickens and dogs that they were eaten. But mainly it was vegetables and fish. Family-style cooking of the pig, though, wasn't done in the Emu. The uh, dressed animal was put on a poi board, filled with hot stones, and then wrapped in old um, cloths, kappas and mats, and that was left then for 48 hours, it was well seasoned inside with salt and stuff, and then the family would eat from the inner uh, side first, where the meat was cooked properly, and any meat which remained, or was only partially cooked, was sometimes cut up and placed in uh, lau laus for recooking, and the lau laus consist of meat and vegetables bundled and tied in leaves and steamed and baked in the imu. Fish-wise, the Hawaiians ate uh, an abundance of fish. Uh, it was all um, cooked straight um, on the coals. So they, they were grilled on the, straight on the hot coals or wrapped in leaves as well. And of, and of course, they also preserved uncooked fish by salting, drying or both. Poi, as we talked about poi before. The whole pig was uh, put on a poi board. So poi was um, cooked taro, which was um, then pounded into a carved board. With a, with a pounder which is a heavy, uh, smooth stone. And this was a tough work, tough job always performed by men. So first the tar was pounded with some water that added some moisture to make the dough like mass. Then uh, poi was as commonly eaten, is simply this uh, paste thinned uh, to somewhat um, fluid consistency by mixing more water. This may be served fresh or slightly fermented. The arrival of Captain Cook in 1778 and subsequent visitations by Europeans introduced a myriad of new material goods and concepts, as well as myriad of problems and diseases. New unknown diseases and the declining birth rate would decimate a once healthy population. Iron in the form of knives, nails and other tools would dramatically alter the native technology. The introduction of explosives and firearms, along with European military knowledge, would eventually enable an aggressive chief from the island of Hawaii to unite the islands. The nation's economic base would shift from a subsistence economy to a barter system, and the rising importance placed on the acquisition of Western goods, on private enterprise, and on personal aggrandizement with redefine social interactions and the cultural value system. Land use would change with the introduction of new plant and animal species. Altered lifestyles resulting from the addition of European goods and the concepts of property rights would result in the modification or rebuilding of native homesteads. Some redistribution of the population would occur, causing disintegration of the native kinship structure. And finally, the overthrow of the Kapu system and the destruction of the visible signs of its power would leave the people quite suddenly without a regulatory social or political framework and with drastically restyled social interrelationships. The arrival of missionaries would result in conversion of the islands to Christianity and their descendants would eventually dominate many of the financial and business aspects of uh, the community. At one point in the late 18th century, they were poised on the brink of an almost complete cultural transformation. Breadfruit. What is it? A fruit or a bread? Or a pudding? There are 150 varieties from around the Pacific and breadfruit we think originated in New Guinea and the Intomalai region and from there it was spread throughout the vast Pacific by voyaging islanders. Now, I don't know if you've seen a breadfruit before, the tree or the fruit itself, but the flower stalk of the male tree is very suggestive and that's uh, all I can say. Perhaps you can Google it and find out what I'm talking about. The amazing thing about it is that it produces an abundance of fruits. That's the most amazing thing about it. And in uh, Hawaii, it's called ulu. It's a very starchy fruit, very much like a potato grown on a tree. And it's very easy to... Maintain and very easy to grow. You plant it once and you have fruits for many, many years, around 50 years or more. Once it reaches maturity and it's big enough, then perhaps you can get even to 600 fruits per year from each tree. The distribution of um, the breadfruit tree Obviously, it took many, many thousands of years to go from New Guinea and um, pass around the Pacific Islands and finally reach Hawaii. And that took possibly 5,000 years to cross all these islands. According to a myth, a creational uh, myth of uh, Hawaii, the breadfruit originated from the sacrifice of the war god, Ku. After deciding to live secretly among mortals as a farmer, Ku married and had children. He and his family lived happily until a famine seized their island. When he could no longer bear to watch his children suffer, Ku told his wife that he would deliver them from starvation, but to do so he would have to leave them. Reluctantly, she agreed, and at her word Ku descended into the ground right where he had stood, until only the toe of his head was visible. His family waited around the spot he had last been day and night, watering it with the tears until suddenly, a small green shoot appeared where Ku had stood. Quickly the shoot grew into a tall and leafy tree and was laden with heavy breadfruits that Ku's family and neighbours gratefully ate, joyfully saved from starvation. And um, in nowadays Hawaii, when a child is born, a Nulu is planted. And ulu is the word, the Hawaiian word for breadfruit. It is harvested in the autumn and uh, excess breadfruit was always fed to the pigs, which came with the Polynesians, as we said earlier on, so there was this cycle of abundance and use and actually the breadfruit was made more useful by the islanders and also provided protein. Nothing was going to waste. So basically in a sense they were converting starch to protein and fat which was also, which is obviously very necessary for, for any living thing to, to survive. Breadfruit was grown and cultivated in the main island of Hawaii, in what was called the Breadfruit Belt, which was half a mile wide and 18 miles long. It was the perfect area for breadfruit. Uh, A long-lived tree in this area will thrive in the wet years, and in bad dry years it will of course uh, survive and also still produce something that can be eaten. And um, it was calculated that this area provided about 50,000 tons of uh, breadfruit annually, Enough to feed uh, thirty thousand people just from that eighteen-mile-long stretch in the one island, and that of course wasn't all. A great uh, agroforestry system was taking place there, when from the native Hawaiians uh, many hundreds of years ago. A diversity of crops were grown into that uh, microhabitat that the trees created. There was the pepper mulberry in the shade of the trees, the sampo ginger, Polynesian arrowroot, and turmeric, and all that stuff were used in food, of course like spices and uh, herbs and so on. Breadfruit can be cooked and eaten at all stages of its development as well. That is another magical thing about it. Uh, It is typically consumed when it's mature but still firm, and it's a delicious substitute for any starchy root crop. Vegetable, pasta, potato or rice. So wherever you think you, you want to use potato or rice or pasta, you can use breadfruit. Mature breadfruit can be boiled, steamed or baked, and replace potatoes in many many recipes. Small, mature fruit can be boiled again, pickled or marinated, and have a flavour similar to that of uh, artichoke hearts. Sliced breadfruit can be fried to make chips or it can be candied. and ripe fruit are very creamy and sweet and can be eaten raw, or used to make pies, cakes and other desserts. So breadfruit made into cereal or, uh, or pureed ripe fruit is good food for babies. The nutritious seeds resemble chestnuts in flavour and texture. They are boiled, roasted or grounded to meal. Immature fruit can be sliced, seeds and all, and cooked as a vegetable. Male flowers are candied and eaten as sweet. So you can see the whole fruit is eaten. It's amazing. It's very unfortunate that Hawaii today relies on other places for its food. It's completely the opposite of what were there for many, many centuries before the Europeans arrived in the late 18th century. Uh, It was such a self-sufficient place. Now the crops that grow in Hawaii are exported as we said about, especially pineapple and sugar cane, and not feeding the people of Hawaii. According to local uh, food historians and um, nutritionists and chefs, basically a tragedy that um, is being slowly reversed, thankfully, by these many passionate people that exist. And of course, not only chefs and food historians, and uh, but botanists and academics and all these people they're trying to bring this amazing culture back. In the year 1898, Hawaii was annexed by the United States and two years later was organized as a United States territory. It was in the 1890s, in fact, 1893, the year that my great-grandfather was born, that the Queen Liliu Kualani was deposed, imprisoned and forced to abdicate by US settlers. She was the last Hawaiian ruler. American colonists controlled Hawaii's sugar-based economy, and they easily overthrew the kingdom and established the Republic of Hawaii. And with the agreement of the mostly American elite, the US annexed Hawaii as a territory, finally, as we said, 1898. The reason for this was twofold, pineapples and sugar. They were heavily taxed as imports to USA, and since the discovery of gold in California, and the huge migration to the West Coast... People becoming rich, those two products, and especially pineapple, it was uh, meant as a luxury. And if you find gold, it meant that you would celebrate with a pineapple or something similar, something that denoted wealth and status. So the imports from Hawaii increased, but they were heavily taxed. With the coup and the overthrow of uh, the Queen, and the annexation by United States meant uh, the Hawaiian economy was protected from American tariffs. Of course, this led to a substantial American investment uh, in the sugar cane industry in the island, and then also the investors, the American investors, also sought other investment opportunities, including a variety of tropical crops, such as pineapple. The Dole Plantation is the first pineapple plantation created for the Hawaiian Pineapple Company, an offshoot of the Dole Food Company, founded in 1901 by James Dole. This plantation acted as one of the main catalysts in the history of exploitation of land and resources through the pineapple industry. Dole's company began profiting off Hawaiian pineapple in 1903 and the industry increased rapidly. James Dole is widely known as the first governor of the state of Hawaii and furthered the economic exploitation of the region through his corporation. The industry was built on the backs of the locals who were paid very little and whose land had been stolen from them as well as Asian immigrants from China, Japan and more, like Philippines, they then suffered even more when it was decided that uh, chip production was no longer viable and the pineapple industry left in favour of countries such as Philippines. The whole myth of exotic tropical paradise of Hawaii was created by the pineapple industry, by the marketing of the pineapples to the Americans of US mainland. And hence, that image we have in our minds of Hawaii is all made up In those golden years of uh, the boom of uh, the canned pineapples in the 20s, 30s and 40s. Of course, Hawaii's history is a lot more complex and a lot more fascinating. And Hawaii itself, the islands, are beautiful. And um, it's a beautiful land with beautiful people, which um, have a fascinating food and history. And it can't just be reduced as a holiday paradise for Westerners. And this is what the episode is all about. The Hawaiian agriculture, the ancient land management of the islands, it's an amazing, sustainable and sufficient way of uh, growing food in the tropics, of course. But uh, still, it was such an ingenious uh, system. There's a national tropical botanical garden in uh, Kauai's lush north shore. And it's a fascinating site. Intricate layers of ancient rock walled terraces that climbed the valley and vanished into the dense highland forests above. Scientists shown by carbon dating that these are more than a thousand years old, and they are part of an ancient Ahupua, a sophisticated land management and food production system that once allowed Hawaii's isolated and densely populated pre-contact, pre-European contact contact communities, to be entirely self-sufficient. Thankfully, we know how that worked, and we know that... um, Many islanders are trying to bring this back if they can get their hands to land that white colonizers want to create um, hotels and tourism and all this um, development. So basically the Hawaiian agricultural system contained two major classes, the irrigated and the rain-fed, which was the dryland systems. The irrigated systems mainly supported the cultivation of taro or kalo, as it's called in the islands. Rain-fed systems were known as the mala. There, they cultivated wala, sweet potatoes, yams, and dry lantaro, along with coconuts, niu, breadfruit, ulu, bananas, maia, and sugarcane, ko. The kukui tree was sometimes used as a shade to protect the mala from the sun. Each crop was carefully placed in an area most suitable to its needs. Hawaiians had domesticated dogs, chickens, and pigs. They also grew personal gardens at home, Obviously, water was a very important part of life, and it was used for fishing and gardening and for aquaculture systems in the rivers and at the shore's edge. Ahupuaa most frequently consisted of a section of an island that went from top of the local mountain to the shore, often following the boundary of a stream, and each Ahupua included a lowland mala and an upland forested region. Ahupua'a varied in size depending on the economic means of the location and, of course, the political divisions of the area. As the native people used their resources within their Ahupua, they practiced aloha, respect, laulima cooperation, and malama, stewardship, which resulted in a desirable pono, balance. The native people believed that the land, the sea, the clouds, and all of nature had certain interconnectedness, which is why they used all of the resources around them To reach the desired balance in life. Sustainability was maintained by the Konohiki and Kahuna, priests who restricted the fishing of certain species during specific seasons. They also regulated the gathering of plants. The term ahupua is derived from the word ahu, which means heap, kern, and the pua, a pig. The boundary markers for ahupua were traditionally heaps of stones used to hold offers to the island chief, which was often a pig. Each ahupua was divided into smaller sections, called Ili. And the Ili were divided into Kuleana. These were individual plots of land that were cultivated by commoners who paid labour taxes to the land overseer each week. These taxes went to support the chief. And for this subdivision, there have been um, two possible reasons for explaining it. One was travel, that in many areas of uh, Hawaii, it is easier to travel up and downstream than from stream valley to stream valley. And of course, economical reasons, having all climate and um, economic exploitation zones as such in each patch of land, it ensured that uh, each could be self-sufficient for a large portion of uh, their needs. As we said, going from the sea to the mountain and having all these different zones, you could cultivate taro, you could have your fish, you have the forest with the, with the fruits and so on. The ancient Hawaiians created a complex culture characterized by highly developed agricultural and aquacultural systems, an advanced engineering technology and intensive and productive fishing industry, a high degree of technical skill in areas such as celestial navigation and various crafts such as canoe making, outstanding artistry in the production of kappa cloth, sculptures and featherwork, and extremely intricate political, social and ceremonial system characterized by dancing, poetry music, and mythology. Native people thrived by fishing in coastal waters and collecting shellfish, seaweed, and salt along the shore. To survive in a hot and arid environment uh, used ancient fishing skills, including the building of fish ponds and the knowledge of the location of precious fresh water that flows into many brackish pools. The spirit of the people, Poe, and the knowledge of the elders, Kupuna, created a tradition of respect and reverence for these areas. And the skills required to fish for sustaining large and vibrant communities. Pre-European contact, Kauai had more than 50 Ahupua, with hundreds or even thousands spread throughout the other islands. And these were described by, by Hawaiians as extending from Mauka, which is the mountains, to Makai, ocean. And each Ahupua had its narrow starting point, high in the inland volcanic peaks, and then widened like a pie slice to include the stretch of shore and the fishing grounds up to a mile out to sea. Channels diverted stream water to irrigate the lowland taro pond fields, which were engineered to circulate water from pond to pond and prevent stagnation. The result was that uh, per acre the yields were five times that of uh, the dryland farming. Where the freshwater streams met the ocean, elaborate rock-walled fish ponds mixed the nutrient-rich water from the taro ponds with the tidal flow, Creating ideal conditions for fattening fish captured through sluice gates. The uplands considered uh, Wauwakua the realm of the gods, and they were off limits to all but those with knowledge of forest stewardship. In a sense, in Ahupua, water is the organizing principle. In some contemporary good news, the community of uh, Haena at Kauai's remote northwest tip, they have a decade's long effort to preserve and restore one of the last remaining examples of a complete ahopua and this is kind of paying off now. Uh, it's called Limahuli Garden and Preserve and it's part of Haena and has now restored 600 acres of agricultural terracing. There is a grassroots community group that includes many descendants of uh, the original families and uh, they have rebuilt taro ponds and revitalized traditional mountains to see land management while also creating the first state-sanctioned community-based marine fishery. In the process, Haena had become a model for efforts to preserve existing Ahubwa throughout the island and restore others long ago destroyed by pineapple plantations and cattle ranches. This system is very holistic and um, thinks about the ecology of the whole uh, watershed and agricultural land and fisheries as one place, as we've said earlier. And this is the way that they managed the resources for hundreds of years. And thankfully, this is now coming around and it's starting to be understood and uh, means that um, they can care for their environment. In Hawaiian language, the word Kipuka often refers to a protected place or oasis within a lava flow where life is able to thrive. A small historical park on the big island of Hawaii serves as a natural and cultural Kipuka. It's an oasis in the midst of modern development at Kaloko or Kohau National Historical Park, the restoration of ancient fish ponds brings native species back to the area and supports near-shore fisheries. It also allows the native Hawaiian community to reconnect with traditional practices, perpetuating culture to the next generation and beyond. And so, this is it. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode about the foods and food systems of uh, old Hawaii, which really was a, an extension of the Polynesian food and traditions with long, long history. And um, and yeah, if you ever find some breadfruit or taro, why not um, try and uh, buy it and cook it and see what you think. Thanks for listening. I've been Thomas Dinas and this was the Delicious Legacy Podcast. Remember to go to Patreon and support the podcast because this is possible only with your generous support. And uh, leave a review or ratings on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts from. See you soon. Bye.